Section 5 of Beacon Lights of History, Volume 12, American Leaders, by John Lord. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by K. Hand. Henry Clay, Part 1. 1777 to 1852. Compromise Legislation. All the Presidents of the United States, with the exception of three or four, must yield in influence to Henry Clay, so far as concerns directing the policy and shaping the institutions of this country only two other american statesmen hamilton and webster can be compared to him in genius power and services these two great characters will be found treated elsewhere in regard to what is called birth clay was not a patrician like washington nor had he so humble an origin as andrew jackson or abraham lincoln like most other great men he was the architect of his own fortunes doomed to drudgeries in the early part of his career and climbing into notice by energy and force of character he was born 1777 in a little virginian hamlet called the slashes in hanover county the son of a baptist minister who preached to poor people and who died when henry was four years old leaving six other children and a widow with very scanty means of support the little country school taught him the rudiments and his small earnings as ploughboy and mill-boy meantime helped his mother the mother was marked by sterling traits of character and married for her second husband a captain watkins of richmond this worthy man treated his stepson kindly and put him into a retail store at the age of fourteen no better educated than most country lads too poor to go to college but with aspirations which all bright and ambitious boys are apt to have especially if they have no fitness for selling the common things of life, and are fond of reading. Henry's stepfather, having an influential friend, secured for the disgusted and discontented youth a position in the office of the clerk of the High Court of Chancery, of which the eminent jurist George Wythe was chancellor. The judge and the young copyist thus naturally became acquainted, and acquaintance ripened into friendship, for the youth was bright and useful and made an excellent amanuensis to the learned old lawyer in whose office both thomas jefferson and john marshall had been students of law after serving four years clay resolved to become a lawyer entered the office of the attorney-general of the state and one year after was admitted to the bar having in all probability acquired much legal knowledge from the communicative chancellor whom everybody loved and honored one of the earliest in virginia to emancipate his slaves and provide for their support the young fellow's reading also had been guided by his learned friend in the direction of history english grammar and the beginnings of law the young lawyer with his pleasing manners quick intelligence and real kindness of heart soon became a favorite in richmond society he was neither handsome nor elegant nor aristocratic but he had personal geniality wit brilliancy in conversation irreproachable morals and was prominent in the debating society a school where young men learn the art of public speaking like gladstone at oxford it is thought probable that clay's native oratorical ability which he assiduously cultivated the gift which as shirts said enabled him to make little tell for much and to outshine men of vastly greater learning misled him as to the necessity for systematic and thorough study lack of thoroughness and of solid information was his especial weakness through life in spite of the charm and power of his personal oratory it is always uphill work for a young lawyer to succeed in a fashionable city where there is more intellect than business 
and when he himself has neither family nor money nor mercantile friends so henry clay at twenty-one turned his eyes to the west the land of promise which was especially attractive to impecunious lawyers needy farmers spendthrift gentlemen merchants without capital and vigorous men of enterprise where everybody trusts and is trusted and where talents and character are of more value than money he had not much legal knowledge nor did he need much in the frontier settlements on the ohio and its valleys the people generally were rough and illiterate and attached more importance to common sense and industry than to legal technicalities and the subtle distinctions of coke and blackstone if an advocate could grasp a principle which appealed to consciousness and enforce it with native eloquence he was more likely to succeed than one versed in learned precedents without energy or plausible utterances the locality which clay selected was lexington in kentucky then a small village in the midst of beautiful groves without underbrush where the soil was of virgin richness and the landscape painted with almost perpetual verdure one of the most attractive spots by nature on the face of the earth a great contrast to the flat prairies of illinois or the tangled forests of michigan or the alluvial deposits of the mississippi it was a paradise of hills and vales easily converted into lawns and gardens such as the primitive settlers of new england would have looked upon with blended envy and astonishment lexington in seventeen ninety seven the year that clay settled in it as a lawyer was called the intellectual center of the far west as the ohio valley was then regarded in reality it was a border post the inhabitants of which were devoted to horse racing hunting and whiskey drinking with a sprinkling of educated people among whom the young lawyer soon distinguished himself a born orator logical as well as rhetorical clay's law practice at first was chiefly directed to the defense of criminals and it is said that no murderer whom he defended was ever hanged but he soon was equally successful in civil cases gradually acquiring a lucrative practice without taking a high rank as a jurist he was never a close student being too much absorbed in politics society and pleasure except on rare occasions for which he crammed his reading was desultory and his favorite works were political speeches many of which he committed to memory and then declaimed to the delight of all who heard him his progress at the bar must have been remarkably rapid since within two years he could afford to purchase six hundred acres of land near lexington and take unto himself a wife domestic thrifty painstaking who attended to all the details of the farm which he called ashland as he grew in wealth his popularity also increased until in all kentucky no one was so generally beloved as he yet he would not now be called opulent and he never became rich since his hospitalities were disproportionate to his means and his living was more like that of a virginia country gentleman than of a hard-working lawyer at this time clay was tall erect commanding with long arms small hands a large mouth blue electrical eyes high forehead a sanguine temperament excitable easy in his manners self-possessed courteous deferential with a voice penetrating and musical with great command of language and so earnest that he impressed everybody with his blended sincerity and kindness of heart the true field for such a man was politics which clay loved so that his duties and pleasures went hand in hand an essential thing for great success his first efforts were in connection with a constitutional convention in kentucky when he earnestly advocated a system of gradual emancipation of slaves unpopular as that idea was among his fellow citizens 
It did not seem, however, to hurt his political prospects, for in 1803 he was solicited to become a member of the state legislature, and was easily elected, being a member of the Democratic-Republican Party as led by Jefferson. He made his mark at once as an orator, and so brilliant and rapid was his legislative career that he was elected in 1806 to the United States Senate to fill the unexpired term of John Adair, being only twenty-nine years old, the youngest man that ever sat in that body of legislators. All that could then be said of him was that he made a good impression in the debates and on the committees, and was a man of great promise, a favorite in society, attending all parties of pleasure, and never at home in the evening. On his return to Kentucky he was again elected as a member of the lower house in the state legislature, and chosen speaker, an excellent training for the larger place he was to fill. In the winter of 1809-10 to he was a second time sent to the United States Senate for two years to fill the unexpired term of Buckner Thurston, where he made speeches in favor of encouraging American manufacturing industries, not to the extent of exportation, which he thought should be confined to surplus farm produce, but enough to supply the people with clothing and to make them independent of foreign countries for many things unnecessarily imported. He also made himself felt on many other important topics and was recognized as a rising man. When his term had expired in the Senate, he was chosen a member of the House of Representatives at Washington, a more agreeable field to him than the Senate, as giving him greater scope for his peculiar eloquence. He was promptly elected Speaker, which position, however, did not interfere with his speech-making whenever the House went into Committee of the Whole. It was as Speaker of the House of Representatives that Clay drew upon himself the eyes of the nation, and his truly great Congressional career began in 1811, on the eve of the war with Great Britain, in Madison's administration. Clay was now the most influential and certainly the most popular man in public life in the whole country, which was very remarkable, considering that he was only thirty-seven years of age. Daniel Webster was then practicing law in Portsmouth, New Hampshire, two years before his election to Congress, and John C. Calhoun had not yet entered the Senate, but was chairman of the Committee of Foreign Relations in the House of Representatives, and a warm friend of the Speaker. The absorbing subject of national interest at that time was the threatened war with England, which Clay did his best to bring about, and Webster to prevent. It was Webster's Fourth of July oration at Portsmouth in 1812, which led to his election to Congress as a Federalist, in which oration he deprecated war. The West generally was in favor of it, having not much to lose or fear from a contest, which chiefly affected commerce, and which would jeopardize only New England interests and the safety of maritime towns. Clay, who had from his first appearance at Washington made himself a champion of American interests, American honor, and American ideas, generally, represented the popular party and gave his voice for war, into which the government had drifted under pressure of the outrages inflicted by British cruisers, the impressment of our seamen, and the contempt with which the United States were held and spoken of on all occasions by England, the latter an element more offensive to none than to the independent and bellicose settlers in Ohio, Kentucky, and Tennessee. Clay is generally credited with having turned the scales in favor of the war with Great Britain, when the United States comprised less than eight millions of people, when the country had no navy of any account, and a very small army without experienced officers, while Great Britain was mistress of the seas, with an enormous army, and the leader of the allied powers that withstood Napoleon in Spain and Portugal. 
to the eyes of the federalists the contest was rash inexpedient and doubtful in its issues and their views were justified by the disasters that ensued in canada the incompetency of hull the successive defeats of american generals with the exception of jackson and the final treaty of peace without allusion to the main causes which had led to the war but the republicans claimed that the war if disastrous on land had been glorious on the water that the national honor had been vindicated that a navy had been created that the impressment of american seamen was practically ended forever and that england had learned to treat the great republic with outward respect as an independent powerful and constantly increasing empire as a champion of the war and for the brilliancy and patriotism of his speeches all appealing to the national heart and to national pride clay stood out as the most eminent statesman of his day with unbounded popularity especially in kentucky where to the last he retained his hold on popular admiration and affection his speeches on the war are more marked for pungency of satire and bitterness of effective against england than for moral wisdom they are appeals to passions rather than to reason of great force in their day but of not much value to posterity they are not read and quoted like webster's masterpieces they will not compare except in popular eloquence with clay's own subsequent efforts in the senate when he had more maturity of knowledge and more insight into the principles of political economy but they had great influence at the time and added to his fame as an orator in the summer of 1814 clay resigned his speakership of the house of representatives to accept a diplomatic mission as peace commissioner to confer with the commissioners from great britain he had as associates john quincy adams james a bayard jonathan russell and albert gallatin the ablest financier in the country after the death of hamilton the commissioners met at ghent and spent five tedious months in that dull city the english commissioners at once took very high ground and made imperious demands that the territory now occupied by the states of michigan illinois wisconsin indiana and a part of ohio should be set apart for the indians under an english protectorate that the united states should relinquish the right of keeping armed vessels on the great lakes that a part of maine should be ceded to great britain to make a road from halifax to quebec and that all questions relating to the right of search blockades and impressments of seamen should remain undiscussed as before the war at these preposterous demands clay was especially indignant in fact he was opposed to any treaty at all which should not place the united states and great britain on an equality and would not have been grieved if the war had lasted three years longer adams and gallatin had their hands full to keep the western lion from breaking loose and returning home in disgust while they desired to get the best treaty they could rather than no treaty at all gradually the british commissioners abated their demands and gave up all territorial and fishery claims and on december fourteenth eighteen fourteen concluded the negotiations on the basis of things before the war the status quo antebellum clay was deeply chagrined he signed the document with great reluctance and always spoke of it as a damned bad treaty since it made no allusion to the grievance which provoked the war which he had so eloquently advocated gallatin and clay spent some time in paris and most of the ensuing summer in london on further negotiations of details but clay had no sooner returned to lexington than he was re-elected to the national legislature where he was again chosen speaker december fourth eighteen fifteen having declined the russian mission and the more tempting post of the secretary of war he justly felt that his arena was the house of representatives which as well as the senate had a republican majority it was his mission to make speeches and pull political wires and not perplex himself with the details of office which required more executive ability and better business habits than he possessed 
and which would seriously interfere with his social life how could he play cards all night if he was obliged to be at his office at ten in the morning day after day superintending clerks and doing work which to him was drudgery much more pleasant to him it was to preside over stormy debates appoint important committees write letters to friends and occasionally address the house in committee of the whole when his voice would sway the passions of his intelligent listeners for he had the power to move to pity and excite to rage besides all this there were questions to be discussed and settled by congress important to the public and very interesting to politicians the war had bequeathed a debt to provide for its payment taxes must be imposed but all taxation is unpopular the problem was to make taxes as easy as possible should they be direct or indirect should they be imposed for a revenue only or to stimulate and protect infant manufactures the country was expanding should there be national provision for internal improvements roads canals etc there were questions about the currency about commerce about the indians about education about foreign relations about the territories which demanded the attention of congress the most important of these were those connected with revenues and tariffs it was this latter question connected with internal improvements and the sales of public lands in which clay was most interested and which more than any other brought out and developed his genius he is generally quoted as the father of the protective policy to develop american manufactures the genius of hamilton had been directed to the best way to raise a revenue for a new and impoverished country that of clay sought to secure independence of those foreign products which go so far to enrich nations webster when reproached for his change of views respecting tariffs is said to have coolly remarked that when he advocated the shipping interest he represented a great commercial city and when he afterwards advocated tariffs he spoke as a representative of a manufacturing state a sophistical reply which showed that he was more desirous of popularity with his constituents than of being the advocate of abstract truth calhoun advocated the new tariff as a means to advance the cotton interests of the south and the defense of the country in time of war thus neither of the great political leaders had in view national interests but only sectional except clay whose policy was more far-reaching and here began his great career as a statesman before this he was rather a politician greedy of popularity and desirous to make friends the war of eighteen twelve had by shutting out foreign products stimulated certain manufactures difficult to import but necessary for military operations like cheap clothing for soldiers blankets gunpowder and certain other articles for general use especially such as are made of iron when the war closed and the ports opened the country received a great inflow of british products hence the tariff of eighteen sixteen the earliest for protection imposed a tax of about thirty five per cent on articles for which the home industry was unable to supply the demand and twenty per cent on coarse fabrics of cotton and wool distilled spirits and iron while those industries which were in small demand were admitted free or paid a mere revenue tax this tariff substantially proposed by george m dallas secretary of the treasury was ably supported by clay but his mind was not yet fully open to the magnitude and consequences of this measure his chief arguments being based on the safety of the country in time of war in this movement he joined hands with calhoun one of his warmest friends and one from whose greater logical genius he perhaps drew his conclusions at that time party lines were not distinctly drawn the old federalists had lost their prestige and power the republicans were in a great majority even john quincy adams and his friends swelled their ranks Jefferson had lost much of his interest in politics and was cultivating his estates and building up the University of Virginia. 
Madison was anticipating the pleasures of private life, and Monroe, a plain non-committal man, the last of the Virginia dynasty, thought only of following the footsteps of his illustrious predecessors, and living in peace with all men. End of section 5